All right, well, first things first, where are my Kentucky fans? Wow. Last night, I think I lost the faith for a little bit of time. I thought this morning I would be coming here and conducting a wake, but, uh, but thankfully that's not what's happening. So we can kind of push that aside. We can root next Saturday. We can take a deep breath. I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about today. Today we're finishing up the series we've been in the past few weeks called What If God Was One of Us? And the theme of this series, we've kind of kind of taken as our jumping off spot this passage in the Gospel of John. John, if you remember, John was an apostle. He was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. He saw Jesus do miracles. And at the end of John's life, he was trying to kind of encapsulate, just kind of capture, kind of put down in words everything he could about Jesus and, you know, what, how is he going to paint the picture of Christ? And he said this. He said, the word, talking about Jesus, came in the flesh and made his dwelling with us. He, that he moved into the neighborhood. He maybe, some people think of it, kind of moved into the house next door. He walked among us, that Jesus came. And we thought, as Christians, you know, as Christians, that is something that we believe. But if you're not a Christian, that is something that's really kind of hard to believe, that God himself showed up on the planet and he didn't come as a king. He showed up as a baby. He was completely human, yet he was completely divine. And that's kind of hard to really kind of wrap your mind around. But Christians believe that God came as one of us to live among us. And the question we've been, an- been asking in the, in the series is why? Why did God come as one of us? And of course, the Sunday school answer is real important. If you want to fully understand Jesus, you can't do that without understanding the cross. But if the only reason Jesus came was to die for our sins, to pay our ransom, to bring life back from the grave, how long would that take? I mean, if Jesus' only purpose in coming was just the cross, then, then why was he here for about 33 years? Why, why, why did he spend so much time teaching and healing and traveling and talking about things of God? Why, why did he do that? And we've discovered in this series that to fully understand who Jesus was, You've got to see the cross, but you've got to look beyond the cross. So the last few weeks, we, we've been trying to answer this question. Why did Jesus come as one of us and live among us? And we've looked at some different answers. We talked about how Jesus came to show us how to love one another, and he set us an example on how to do that. We talked last week about how Jesus came to show us this better picture of the Father, to show us the true character and heart of God. But what we're going to talk about today, as I was kind of putting this series together, is the message that I personally have been most looking forward to, real excited about what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to kind of discover this together, but as we do, I kind of want to start with a story. The story is this. As Jesus was coming to the end of his ministry, he was on his way to Jerusalem one afternoon. He was with his 12 apostles and probably some other people. And as they're making their way to Jerusalem, Jesus knew that this was going to be the last time that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He knew this would be the last time. He knew that once he got there, he would eventually be arrested, that he would eventually be crucified. So before they get there, he decides to get his apostles, his guys together, and kind of fill them in about how this trip to Jerusalem is going to be different from all the others. 
he brought them together to tell them, you know, up until now, whenever they would come into Jerusalem, when Jesus would come and his disciples would come with them, crowds would just show up. Sometimes thousands of people would come, and everybody was kind of pressing and wanting to get close to Jesus. But if they couldn't get close to Jesus, they would at least want to talk to the guys who were close to Jesus. So the disciples really, at this part in the ministry, the life of Jesus, were kind of like rock stars, if you will, whenever they showed up. People just wanted to get near them. They wanted to be close to them. And this time, Jesus was telling them, this time, it's going to be completely different. He pulls them aside and kind of opens up his heart and tells them how this trip to Jerusalem is going to be so much different than all the others. Here's what he said in Mark 10, verse 33 to 34. Jesus says this. He tells his followers, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, that's, that's a name for Jesus, talking in third person here, He said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles. And here's what Jesus says is going to happen to him. He says they're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him and kill him. And he says three days later, he will rise. And, and, And maybe you can feel it a little bit. This is a very tender moment. Jesus is pouring out his heart, his anguish to his closest friends, people he's spent three or three and a half years with that he's known so close and intimately, and he's pouring out his heart about what is about to happen to him, about how this is going to be incredibly difficult. It's going to be different from any other trip they've taken to Jerusalem. And it's in this tender moment when Jesus is just kind of pouring out his heart and being vulnerable that James and John, two of his disciples, look over at Jesus, and they say, Jesus, come here a minute. They kind of walk off to the side. And, and you think that James and John, these close friends and followers of Jesus, are maybe going to kind of put their arms around Jesus, maybe, maybe just kind of say, Jesus, we want to pray for you about what's coming. You think maybe they're going to do that. Or, or maybe you think that they call Jesus off to the side, and maybe they're just, maybe there's no words can express what's about to happen. So maybe they're just going to hug him, Tell them they love them. Maybe they'll shed some tears as this is a tender, tender moment. Instead, here's what happened. Look at verse 35 to 37. Jesus pours out his heart, and then then we read, then. Kind of like right then. Or like immediately after Jesus pours out his heart and kind of lays himself bare to his disciples. It says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, They said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And you read that and you're like, hold on, really? I mean, after all Jesus said, I mean, do you remember being a kid? Okay, here's kind of what it's like. Remember being a kid and there was a right time to ask mom and dad something and there was a wrong time to ask. Right? I mean, if dad is like in the garage working and, you know, if you go out there, he's kind of saying words you really shouldn't hear. He's kind of hitting his thumb and that's really not good. Now's not the time to ask him. And then you go in the house and mom's in there and, and she knows dad's out in the garage and that never works well. So she's kind of anxious, kind of filled with emotions. So now's not the time to ask her. You've got to kind of pick and choose those moments to ask. Now is not the right time maybe to ask Jesus for a favor. Right? Well, here's how it finishes up. They ask him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So Jesus, I think he kind of exhales. He says, okay, what what do you want me to do for you? He asks. And here's what they said. 
they replied, um, let one of us, we're thinking, let one of us sit at your left hand and let one of us sit at your right in glory. Hey, Jesus, come here, listen, um, Sorry about all that being spit on and mocked and, oh, that just sounds really a rough week you're going to have. But, but hey, we were kind of talking and we're thinking, you know, when you become the king that we'd like to, I don't know, do they have a vice king? You know, we'd like to be the vice king. You know, I mean, do they have princes? How, and Jesus, how does that work? But we're thinking, you know, you're, you're the king and we're thinking, could you kind of, you know, give us some power? Can you kind of put us in charge? Can we, you know, if you're out of town, can we go cut the ribbon at the gas station? I mean, I don't know, you know, Jesus, can we kind of, you know, get in on some of this? I mean, isn't that, with the timing, some of the most insensitive things you've maybe ever heard in Scripture? Well, this little powwow doesn't go unnoticed. Jesus is there, and he's got his 12 apostles, and James and John are with Jesus, and all the rest of the apostles notice this conversation take place, and they become indignant, and of course they do, right? I mean, of course they're upset because they're starting to catch wind of what's going on, so you expect that the other 10 guys are going to come over and just read James and John the riot act. How dare you? After he poured out his heart, after all he said, after what he's facing, now is not the time to ask. They get upset. They come over, but not for the reason you might think. The other guys come over and they say, hold on, time out. We've been with you just as long as they have. We've known you just as Jesus, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it for us too. It's not fair if they get it. And, and, and they break out into this argument about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven right after Jesus tells them, hey, guys, this week I'm going to be arrested and spit upon and mocked and flogged and killed. Just thought you guys, my close friends, might want to know. Just thought you might care. Maybe you might gather around, pray fast. I don't know. But just thought you guys would want to know that. So this, this happens. And Jesus basically kind of calls a timeout. He puts the disciples in timeout, kind of puts them under a tree, kind of waits a little bit. I'm not sure how long he waits. But he puts them in timeout, and he sits them down, and he walks over, and he says, guys, before we get to Jerusalem, I know we've talked about this before, but before we go this time, let me go over this one more time. And basically he says, he says, guys, you know how the, the rulers and the leaders of the Gentiles are? You know how they act? You know how when they get power, they just lord it over people? You know how they make their servants do things nobody would want to do, and they just feel so entitled, and they have this position, and they just can't wait to exercise this authority? He said, guys, you know how that happens? And they're sitting there, yeah, yeah. That's why we want to be in power. We want to do that. Jesus, you know, don't want to push back too hard, but that's one of the reasons why we follow you. We're kind of hoping you're going to become king, and maybe we're going to get to be that way. And John's sitting there thinking, yeah, and, and, and I'm hoping to be the number two guy, right? You know, okay? And Jesus, in this moment, this, this moment that was first a tender moment, and now it's kind of gone off the rails, not where anybody anticipated, he says, wait, wait, guys, listen, listen, one more time. He said, you know how the, how the Gentile leaders how the rulers lord their power over people. You know how they feel entitled to that attention and that position. The disciples are like, yeah, yeah, we want that. And Jesus says this in verse 43 of Mark chapter 10. Jesus says, not so with you. He tells them, he says this, he says, it's fine to want to be great. That's, that's great. He said, it's okay to want to be in charge. It's okay to want to be the ruler. It's okay to want to have authority. He says, but guys, when the day comes 
when you actually have authority, if the day comes when you actually have power and the opportunity to rule over people, you've seen how the typical ruler does it. You've seen how most leaders do it. Don't you act that way. Don't don't you use your power or position in that way. Not so with you, he said. I was looking this week, kind of doing some research, looking through some stuff, um, preparing for the message, and I noticed some, some articles that said if there's one word to describe this current generation, and specifically they're talking about like 18 to 30-year-olds, said if there's one word to describe that generation, they said it's the word entitled. And, and, and they listed all these studies, and there's these sociologists and other academicians with all these studies, and I thought it was interesting none of them were in that 18 to 30-year-old age group, just found that kind of ironic. But all these intelligent academic people claim that we are suffering through the age of entitlement. You hear about it all the time on the news, entitlements, entitlement. I mean, all the time we hear about that. And as I read through these articles and read through what they had to say, I thought, you know, I'm not sure that I quite agree. And, and, and maybe you'll feel the same way. Because I thought, you know, I don't think it's really a younger generation thing. I think our whole nation, I think everybody at every age, maybe the word that best describes us is the word entitled. Now, when I say the word entitled, I thought I could give you a definition. You could write that down. I thought, but better, I think I'd rather kind of describe it for you. Entitled is kind of like this. Entitled is kind of like an Easter egg hunt, okay? Maybe, maybe you went to one this weekend. And every Easter egg hunt, there are like three groups of kids. There are the real little kids. There are like the medium-sized kids. And then there are the kids who really should be ID'd first, right, before they go. And, and, and if you're a parent of like a real little kid, okay, and you see these big kids I mean, you are nervous about what's about to happen. And, and the Easter egg starts, and maybe a 1,000 kids or a few hundred kids just kind of race out into a field or run somewhere. And it seems like every Easter egg hunt kind of goes this way. The big kids get there first, and they're just running, and they're picking up all these Easter eggs. They might even kind of hip-check one of the smaller kids, but, I mean, they're getting their, their Easter eggs. They're just filling up their basket. It's just kind of overflowing. They're getting every egg they want. And then you've got these real little tiny kids who can barely walk. They're kind of toddling around, and they're crying, and it's just really horrible. And then they see one egg, one kind of shiny egg, and they kind of toddle over to the egg, and they reach down, and they're smiling because the tears are still rolling, and they're reaching for it, and some big kid kind of swoops in and just kind of takes the egg because he's entitled to it. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's faster. And then the end of the Easter egg hunt comes and you've got all the big kids and they're walking around with like a basket full, like 12 pounds of Easter eggs. And they're so happy because they've got everything they came for. They're thinking, these are my Easter eggs. I've earned them. I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. But then you got the parents of the real little kids and the little kids are in tears, and maybe some of the parents are a little bit in tears. And they're looking for the people who put on the Easter egg hunt, right? And they're complaining, and they're saying, my kids deserve more eggs. My kids are entitled. We paid for this. We go to this church. My kids should get this stuff. It's not fair. You should have done something about it. I mean, everybody should get a trophy. We're all winners, right? And the, and the first group feels entitled because they work these eggs. 
and maybe the parents of these kids and these little kids also feel kind of entitled because everybody should get the same amount of eggs. And, and then you have these entitlement wars. It's, it's, it's entitlement. Maybe that doesn't connect, but maybe this will. Here's another way to think about entitlement. You see entitlement every year on the after Thanksgiving Day sales, right? Black Friday, I mean, you see entitlement like crazy. When I was in college, I had a great job. When I was in college, I worked at the Gap Outlet. I don't even know if the Gap still exists, but 25 years ago, everybody just wanted to fall into the Gap. The Gap was just amazing. I mean, you know, everybody wanted to wear Gap jeans and Gap sweaters. It was just an, just an amazing thing. And the outlet store back then was absolutely crazy because it was part of the warehouse and we could only fit like 75 people in, in the store. So there'd always be this line of people just waiting for their turn to get in. One year at Christmas time, got there and we opened at 9. It was 8 o'clock when I got to work and there was already this long line of people. And I asked the security guy, I said, what time did the first group get here? So they got here at 5 o'clock in the morning. People would wait four or five hours just to, to buy some cheap jeans or to get some sweaters. And, and at the Gap, no doubt, probably the best seller were the Gap sweaters. If you remember this, like 25 years ago, if you're old enough, Gap sweaters were like V-neck sweaters, and they had like this cabling kind of that ran through them, and everybody had to have a Gap sweater. I looked for a picture this week, couldn't find one, but I've got way too many from back then, Gap sweaters. But one of my jobs at the outlet store, and this was a whole lot of fun, was my job was to bring out the boxes of Gap sweaters and put them on the table. We had one kind of sweater table. And people would just kind of just stay, just kind of milling around the table, waiting for the next box of sweaters to come. And we, when I first started working there, we had this young girl, college-age girl. She was like maybe five feet tall, probably didn't, didn't even weigh 100 pounds. She used to be the one to bring out the sweaters. And we sent her out one day. They still haven't found her. It was just an absolute mess. But, but my job, I was bigger, my job was to bring out the sweaters. So I'd see the table, and I'd see people there, and I'd bring out the box of sweaters. I'd put it over my head, and, and I'd see them there, and I'd just think, I think now's a good time to kind of take a walk around the whole store. So I'd just walk around the store carrying these sweaters, and within like a minute, there'd be like this conga line of people behind me just kind of, you know, salivating, wanting the Gap sweaters. So finally, I'd go to the table and drop it. And this day, it was about a week before Christmas, and I'm looking out, the store is packed, the line's really long, we're bringing out sweaters every, every few minutes, and there's just this group, this mob of people waiting around the sweater table. I look for my moment, I bring out the sweaters, I bring them down, I just drop them, and immediately people, I mean, they're over each other, they're grabbing the sweaters, but what caught my notice was these two women, probably moms, mid-40s, they each grabbed the same sweater. They were across the table, one got one arm, and one got the other arm. And they started, and I looked at them, and I could look in their eyes, and I thought, man, this is not going to end well. This is not going to be pretty. One grabs one arm, one grabs the other. It's my sweater. I had it first. It's my favorite color. They're just going back and forth, and everybody's kind of watching this. And there was one mom. She was kind of real petite, and there was another mom. She was not. And she, with all her might, took one last you know, yank of that sweater and she got the sweater. But right behind her was a circle rack full of like 50 to 100 shirts. And it's like in slow motion, like in a movie. She gets the sweater. And as she gets it, it's like tug of war. Suddenly, all your momentum throws you back. And she takes a step back. She falls into the circle rack of shirts. Thankfully, nobody's behind the circle rack. The rack 
falls to the ground. She falls to the ground. Everybody is looking at her, can't see her. She is covered in gap shirts. She's lying in the ground. She's lying there. We're all looking at her. And finally, her feet are kind of kicking, and she's kind of moving the shirts. And slowly, she rises up, completely having received everything she was entitled to, the gap sweater and all the embarrassment that came with it. Now, here's the deal. If you're a Christian or if you're a church person, if you can imagine for a moment Jesus walking into the gap outlet as people are having these entitlement wars over sweaters, or even weirder than that, if you can imagine Jesus showing up at an Easter egg hunt, and Jesus walks in and he's like, hold on, seriously, I, I die on the cross, I rise from the dead, and you have an Easter egg hunt and you're arguing about who gets more eggs, right? I mean, I mean what is Jesus going to do as he steps into that situation? I don't know, at the Easter egg hunt, is Jesus going to do like the loaves and fishes thing? And start multiplying all, there's plenty of, bring the little children to me and give them all these Easter eggs. I don't know, at the gap, is Jesus, while people are feeling all this entitlement, is he going to walk in and do a Solomon thing and kind of say, cut the sweater in two and find out, you know, which one cries, oh, it's really your sweater and kind of hand it off to them. I mean, what would Jesus do in, in those moments with all those questions and feelings of entitlement that, that, that kids have, that that we have as adults, those feelings of entitlement maybe that we have in our families, those, those times where we feel like something is owed to us, that we've earned it or we deserve it. I mean, the little kid at the Easter egg hunt, he feels entitled. The Christmas shoppers, they feel entitled. The apostles, even they felt entitled. And I think we still do. We've worked for, we've played by the rules, we've earned it, we deserve it, and we feel we're entitled to it. And if you put Jesus into our entitlement scenarios and how we think about those issues, what would he do? Well, the New Testament tells us. Jesus modeled this for us, and I'm telling you, what we're going to talk about in the last few minutes that we've got together is something, if you're a Christian, this is absolutely huge. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. And I don't want to kind of bury the lead. I just want to tell you up front, here's what I think Jesus would do. I think Jesus would say, when it comes to that question, what am I entitled to? I think he would tell us, you're asking the wrong question. I think Jesus would say, the better question is this. What will I do with what I'm entitled to? Jesus modeled this in the most extreme way. It was hours before he would be arrested. Jesus and his disciples, they get to Jerusalem. He kind of calms everyone down. They've gotten settled down. And they're going to celebrate their pa- the last Passover together. If you remember Passover is the Jewish feast, the celebration where they remembered the night the death angel came and God said that only those who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost would be saved and many of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians died then. And in this meal together that night that Jesus is sharing for the last time with his disciples, something extraordinary happens. And, and I can't even begin to exaggerate how the feeling, the atmosphere would have been in the room that night. But let me tell you the story real quick and see if we can capture it together. Go over to John's Gospel in chapter 13. John 13. Here's where we'll be for the next few minutes. It starts off this way. as a little bit of a setup. It said it was just before the Passover festival. It's just the night before. And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world 
and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Just kind of setting everything up for where we're going. And here's, here's where the action kind of starts. It says the evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So Judas betraying Jesus, we've all heard that story. The wheels are kind of already in motion. It's already kind of started. And then John tells us this. Then John says, Jesus knew. And that's, that's a key little phrase, those two words. Because here's what John is really trying to communicate. John is trying to tell us that in some way, maybe being in this room, maybe what's about to take place, maybe the face, the faces of his followers, whatever it is. But for some reason, not that Jesus learned something he didn't already know, but for some reason, Jesus knew. It was brought to the forefront of his consciousness. For some reason, something about this moment brought this idea to Jesus' mind, and here's what it was. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now, this is amazing because, again, in this moment, somehow Jesus, as he's talking, as the meal is going on, as, as as he looks around the room, he's overwhelmed with this sense or with this knowledge that God the Father has put everything under his authority. That somehow in this moment, he realizes, he understands that he has all power. Suddenly, he's acutely aware of the fact that he is in complete control and that God has given him all power. So here's the question. What do you do when it dawns on you that God has given you all power? And what a time for Jesus to be reminded of this power. Because just down the street, some guys have gathered together and they're just waiting for the word to come and arrest him. What do you do when it dawns on you that you are the most powerful person on the planet and in less than 24 hours, you're going to be executed? God somehow has given you all authority and all power and God's basically saying, look around the room. That guy's going to betray you. That guy's going to deny you and all the rest are going to run. Do whatever you want. What's your next move? What's your next move when you realize that you have been entitled by God with all power that exists in the world? This is going to blow your mind. Look at what Jesus does. Verse 4. It says, so. Pause real quick, because this this is a beautiful word. It's just the hinge in this passage. Because what John is saying, he's saying, so. With, With all that in mind, knowing your friends have forsaken you, knowing you're going to be abandoned, knowing that you're going to the cross, and knowing that you've got the power to change it, to save your life. John says, so, Jesus got up from the meal, and he took off his outer clothing. Jesus was a rabbi. He wore a robe that that would signify his power and his authority. He stands up from the meal. All eyes in the room are fixed on Jesus. And what he does next, there's no way to adequately describe the feeling that was in that room. I think a hush falls over the room. It says he stands up, took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured some water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. See, in the moment when the betrayers 
and the deniers and the cowards were in the room. In the moment when it dawns on him that he has the power to change it. In the moment when he knows he can alter what's about to happen. In that moment, with all that power, he decides that the best thing to do is what he's been doing from the very beginning. And he serves him. I got to be honest. That response wouldn't even cross my mind. I mean, I get the chance with all power given to me to confront the ones who've lied about me, to confront the ones who, who are planning my execution. I mean, I've got all power. I mean, I've been dreaming about this if you're him, right? I mean, maybe you're having these imaginary conversations in in your head about what you're going to do and what it's going to look like. You're thinking, you know, serve them? No way. Serving them up? Yeah, I might do that. But serving them? No way. No way. It's not what Jesus taught, though. Do you know? Do you know what your Savior did? The moment he was most aware that he was entitled by God with all power and all authority. He took the form of a servant. Skip down a few verses. Jesus tries to define this moment for his followers then and even for us today. Down in verse 12. Second part of the verse begins this way. Jesus says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked him. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. See, people today, some some camps want to minimize who Jesus was, saying he never really claimed to be God. People claim that later. Sure he did. This is just one of many examples where Jesus claimed that. And here Jesus is basically saying this. He's saying, I am absolutely entitled to these positions and the power, the respect that comes with being a teacher and with being your Lord. I'm absolutely entitled to that, which just gives more weight to what happens. Jesus goes on and he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you, Jesus says, an example that you should do as I have done for you. I've set you an example, he says. At any moment, at any place, at any time, when it dawns on you that you are entitled, I've set you an example. If you ever wonder, what should I do with that entitlement of power or influence or time or money? If you ever wonder what you should do with what you've been given, Jesus tells us, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Listen, if you're a Christian in this room, if you're not, this doesn't apply to you. But if you're a Christian, these are our marching orders, aren't they? I mean, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to know the Greek and the Hebrew and be able to exegete. I mean, all that, you don't have to get up and speak and do all that kind of stuff. Jesus couldn't have made it any clearer, could he? For those in the room that day, for those of us today who are reading what happened 2,000 years ago, Jesus is basically saying, the question is not. Stop asking the question, what am I entitled to? Instead, start asking, asking the question, what will I do with what? I've been entitled to. Jesus says, I've set you an example. I went beyond teaching. I actually showed up. I didn't just believe it or say it. I did it. 
Jesus says, look for a way to leverage what you've been entitled to for the sake of those who are less entitled. Which, really, as we've been saying in the, in the series, that's one of the reasons Jesus came. It, it, it's one of the reasons Jesus came to earth as one of us. He took on human flesh as, with all the blood, with all the sweat, the tears, all the anxiety, all that comes with that. And even that wasn't enough. He decided to not take what was rightfully his. When the moment came and he was absolutely aware when it was in the front of his mind that I'm, I have all power and authority, he decided to humble himself. And he became our servant. And in doing so, he said, I've set an example for you. Now, just for just a minute, imagine with me, if you will. Can you imagine if the church had that reputation? I mean, if for those on the, let's say we went to Fountain Square today, downtown, and, and we found people who just said they're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if you went there and said, hey, let's play a little word association game. I'm going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm say a word, you tell me what you think. And you start by saying, I'm going to say church. Can you imagine if they don't give the answers that you would expect? But can you imagine if they said, okay, church. I'm not really sure if I believe everything they believe, but man, I want, I want somebody from the church as my boss. I want them as my coworker. I want, I want my kids to marry one, right? I mean, what if they said, you know, I'm not sure if I believe all their theology and all the things that they teach, but man, have you seen how those people give? Have you seen how those people invest back into their community? I'm not sure if I believe all they believe, but there's nothing better than a rich Christian. Can you imagine if, if that was the reputation? Maybe, maybe that's not enough. Maybe it just needs to be more personal. Can you imagine what your family would look like if you said, I might be entitled to better, I might be entitled to more, but I'm not going to fight for what's mine. I'm going to look for ways to serve my spouse. I'm going to look for ways to serve my kids. Can you imagine, if you're a teenager, could you imagine if you said, you know, my parents might not be entitled to this, but I'm just going to look for ways to serve them. Can you imagine in the workplace, whether you're a boss or an intern, whether you own the place or, or, or whether you, know, you can barely make ends meet, can you imagine if you took to heart Jesus' words when he said, I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you? And we really don't have any excuses, right? I mean, because Jesus, the night before he goes to the cross, he could have said this. He's, he could have said, guys, sorry, I got to check out tonight because tomorrow, really big day. Tomorrow, I'm going to take your sin on my back. Tomorrow, horrible things are going to happen to me. Sorry, guys, take care of yourselves tonight. And if Jesus would have said that, nobody would have blamed him. Instead, Jesus came to earth as one of us. He lived among us. And I think it's so key. The last thing he did when he had all his followers together before he went to the cross is he taught them how to serve. And I think the question that leaves us with is this. In light of what Jesus did and in light of the example he set, what am I going to do with what I've been entitled to? Let me pray for you. Father, you're good to us. So much better than we deserve. God, we're, we're in this week, as Mark was saying earlier, Palm Sunday, and we've, we think about this, this beautiful day where 
where you came into Jerusalem and, and you were so welcomed and how the rest of the week would, would just play out so, so painfully. Lord, how, how we're part of the reason for that, how it was because of our sin. God, that you came, that you became one of us. Jesus, that you took on our flesh, that you walked among us, that you took our sin upon yourself. And what a marvelous, matchless gift you've given us of new life in Christ, that regardless of what we've done, that we have hope and peace and freedom all through you, Jesus. And Jesus, you came and and you showed us the Father, you showed us how to love, and the last thing you did before you went to the cross was you said, let me show you how to serve people. God, help us take whatever entitlement you've given us, whatever leverage or power or leadership we have, whatever monies we have, whatever it is, help us to use them for you. Help us to use them for all those around us. Help us to love you by loving those in our lives. May everything we do, Father, bring you glory. Thank you for your son and that wonderful gift. In Christ's name we pray to you, Father. Amen.